What's up, folks? Uh, we are here with another fantastic episode of Historically High. We are starting a little bit different today. We're going to cut the chit-chat because this is a big old bitch. Um, we're going to split it into two episodes. First episode this week is going to be... Uh, first episode this week is going to be... It's going to be kind of covering everything for Operation Overlord, but because we are coming up on the anniversary of D-Day... Um, we're going to drop it into two episodes. So first episode dropping a week before the anniversary of D-Day is going to be essentially kind of the state of the world at this point during World War II and all the lead up and what it actually took to pull this thing off. And then the second episode we're dropping on the day before it happened, 79 years ago, is actually going to be about the day of days, D-Day itself. Yeah, so um, we're going to try to keep these a little bit shorter than normal episodes. Hopefully we'll keep it you know, under two hours for each one. Uh, but you'll have some time to digest the first, and then we'll jump into the second. So get ready, strap in, uh, we are storming the beaches of Normandy. All right, man, this is my... This is my day of days for this. Like, I don't know how I have, I don't know how we haven't covered this. I think I've just been holding this one. I've been able to scratch my World War II itch yeah. a little bit through other topics and everything, but this is literally my my jam inside my favorite historical event. And I, I, I'm just excited to hear you go off on this one because I, I I know kind of the the nuts and bolts of it. I didn't know a lot of the shit that's come out of it. Um, I learned a lot more, and I'm sure we'll cross over a little bit. Um, Operation Fortitude, it was like our seventh episode. Yeah. And I had no idea that that even existed. There's more shit inside what I've learned, and I'm sure mm-hmm. what you're going to teach me that's going to be, I mean, and that was cr- just like a, an appetizer. And, it, and it's amazing. We're going to get to a point where we do talk about a little bit about Operation Fortitude and the role that it played. At that point, feel free to go ahead and pause the episode. Go back, listen to the Fortitude so you can listen, because I'm going to, we're going to briefly cover it. Yeah, well, but I just, mean, between episodes, just bang Fortitude out too. Yeah, so you'll find out as, you know, how extensive that operation actually was but you know this is one of those events man that those linchpin moments in history that you can point back to and you know most people are familiar with this regardless if you have you know a knowledge of world war ii um saving private ryan the opening scene takes place essentially with the storming of omaha beach and we'll get into some more detail on that uh band of brothers covers it from the airborne perspective about what the airborne operation was during Normandy to draw behind enemy lines. Um, Call of Duty has made any World War II game. I'm not getting into it that way. I'm just kind of familiarized people with it. Yeah, you storm the beaches of Normandy. That's like one of your first levels. That's how you get into Europe. Call of Duty has abused World War II in order uh, yes, to make there's, money. Yeah. But there's just, you know, this was a different time man, and there were different people like, the experiences and and reading about these people and what they did, you know, these were kids too. That's the craziest part about it. And they were kids that never saw a different part of the world. But before we get into the day, the actual day, let's just kind of cover what it took to actually make that all possible, to make the invasion of Western Europe, to take it back from the Nazis possible. Before we even start into the plan, it, this is kind of one of those things where, 
Like, when you think about military strategy now, it's sort of like we need to try to preserve the lives of the people that are performing this. Like, we don't want to see any casualties happen. Mm-hmm. Like, any operation or anything like that. It's to try to save as many people any as possible. Any casualty is too many casualties. Yeah. Like, to the public, I don't think from a military standpoint they look at it that yeah. way. They know that's kind of... Uh, they know that PR-wise, though, yeah, they need exactly. to keep those casualties down. Yeah. This whole plan, Operation Overlord... It was like they had accounted for a very large number of deaths. They, because I mean, just the plan itself in storming the beaches, like mm-hmm. even a perfect plan before that happens, you're still running onto a beach that's already secured and mm-hmm. ready to fire on you. Well, and they had experience before even planning um, Operation Overlord. They had experienced and been able to gain some, some knowledge about seaborne invasions. Um, it was Operation... Crap, I can't remember the name. It was the one that took place when, after they had kicked um, the British and the Americans, kicked the Nazis out of Africa, uh, North Africa. Oh, yeah. Back up Um, into Italy. They took over, they stormed the beaches of Sicily, and they did it with the same type of, like, landing craft. It was a really good way to kind of beta test how successful a seaborne landing and invasion could be. And then, at this point in the world... Nazis, you know, the Nazis still control essentially really all of mainland Europe with the exception of Switzerland, which is literally just right in the middle of like the third right controlled area. And then I want to say Sweden. There was something that Sweden did. They, they, They weren't, they were neutral in it. But you never hear like when they say we're the Swiss, we're neutral. You never hear about like the Swedish being neutral, but they apparently weren't part of that either. I think the Swedish just kind of give a fuck about themselves and that's really it. And maybe, I mean, because... They saw what the Swedish people look like, and they're like, "We can't touch these yeah, people." These hot. are your race is already perfect. Yes, you already yep, are the Aryan. As race. far as what we're concerned, you guys are good. And then they walked into Poland. They're like, "Ugh, can't believe you guys actually have electricity." I didn't think that was real. We're taking you over. Well, the thing too is, you know, the actual operation or the actual landing itself took place. I mean, we're talking about pretty late in the war. This is 1944 that D-Day actually happens. Wildly late <clears throat> in the war for what happens. At this point, though, since Dunkirk, the Germans have had free reign over all of Europe. The British haven't been back in force. They haven't been able to. They haven't been able to muster the strength or anything like that, the equipment to do this. They've made some little raids and everything like that, and they, you know, of course, are flying missions over there and they have a spy network that they're utilizing and they have the French resistance they're communicating with, but they have no army. Well, and they're Europe. still licking their wounds after that failure that Churchill had. The, uh, what was it? Oh, um, no, no, that was the first one. You're, you're talking, you're the, the operation that we talked about during, um, it'll be a future episode, but Lawrence of Arabia, the one that tied back. Oh, to okay. Yeah, that yeah. was during world war one when he was uh, Lord of the Admiralty. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's prime minister at this point. So the, the only people that the Nazis are fighting right now, the only places that are really actively engaged. So the Eastern front against uh, the Russians, that's currently still going on. And then also kind of in what Churchill calls the soft underbelly of Europe, is where the south of France and Italy are. The Allies have taken the southern half of Italy, none of France, but the and the Italians are pretty much out of the war at this point. But it's got to the point where if you you know Italy looks like a penis kind of when you get up into mainland it kind of curves out into two balls. I, I think they say a boot, but yeah. No, if you look I, at it, it looks more like a dick. It it looks nothing like a boot. It looks like a dick. 
Okay. What I'm saying, though, is What's we've only made it like? halfway up the shaft. So essentially, we're at a choke point. We're due to terrain. The Germans are able to go ahead and hold the Allied advance off. So we're we have right to open the, another the front. The right, where if, it, if it, you have a slight a lilt. lilt to the side of it. So we're looking for another way to essentially get into Europe. And during this whole time, Stalin, since like 1941, Stalin is pretty much telling us, hey, we're doing the fighting here. Like, you guys need to open a second front, a Western front, to try to pull some of the pressure off us so we can actually make some headway and, and get this thing tied up. Well, and hadn't Hitler and Stalin kind of been thick for a little bit? And we're in it together a little. And then Hitler attacked Russia and <laughs> basically was like, hey, man, we're buddies, we're buddies. And then he attacked Russia. And yeah, they like, had what a, are you doing? They had a, non, like a non-aggression pact that they had made. And then the whole time Hitler knew he was going to double-cross him. And so as soon as he got Britain out of the way and kind of back on their island where they couldn't cause him any issues on the mainland, he turned and that was Operation Barbarossa. And that was the invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh. And Soviet Union, then like the Baltic region, because that was like where all the fuel and stuff was coming from. So they they claimed that or gone in to claim that. And so, I mean, Stalingrad, all this kind of stuff had happened, all the stuff you hear about, like all, you know, on the Eastern Front, that stuff had all occurred up to this point. So, but they, they've got it locked down. They've got mainland Europe locked down. There's not really a way to get in there. And that's where essentially the planning kind of comes in for Operation Overlord. You have two phases of it. One is called Operation Neptune, and Operation Neptune and Neptune is the seaborne invasion part of it. Overlord is essentially the operation itself to establish a foothold in Europe. Just the all-encompassing. Yeah, and I think it took it ends up taking place over the course of not taking in the planning stages. From the execution, the start of the operation to the end of it, I think was about three months before they considered Operation Overlord completed. And that was really, like you say, that was Operation Overlord was just their first step onto basically like mainland Europe. Yes. That, that was the way to get back to where they needed let's to be. Let's get there and then we'll figure out what the fuck we're going to do. Like, we, well, let's not make plans about what we're going to do once we get there until we can figure out how to actually get there and establish a foothold. Yeah, which is a very smart move because you don't want to overplay the first. It's, you, you don't want to save shot. all your timeouts for the fourth you, quarter. You get one shot at this, and if it's not successful, I'm not saying you don't get another shot. You asked me a question that if the Germans would have played different hands and things like that, was there a possibility that this invasion would have failed? Yes, but I mean, it would have taken a lot well, to and, fall into their to fall into onto their side for this to to be stopped. But so many things still went wrong during D-Day. Mm -hmm. oh, it, it, it's incredible to think how many things went wrong and the fact that they were still able to pull it off with, I wouldn't say the speediest of success, but I would say pretty quickly still. Well, yeah. So just kind of, this kind of gives you a scope of how much land is controlled essentially by Germany at this point. So they control Germany, France, the northern half of Italy, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Croatia, Serbia, Albania, Greece, Bulgaria, and Romania. That's a lot of E's. That's a lot of E's. And then the Allies, we have uh, North Africa, um, the two islands off of Italy. I never knew what they were called. It's Sardinia, which I recognize the name. I just never knew where Sardinia was. And then uh, the home Corsica. Of Sardines? I don't know. It might be. the, but And then um, Corsica, and I'd never heard of that before. But yeah, there's two little islands off Italy. So we have control of those. And then the southern half of Italy. And, and then part of Spain, right? Or Spain no. was just neutral on them? Yeah, Spain never never stepped in. Because didn't 
That's why they were able to run so many of the rat lines through Spain, because it wasn't occupied by the Allies. It was just neutral. Yeah, well, okay. The Spanish never stepped in and took a side. But I even think though- if they would have saw the writing on the wall, and it was a foregone conclusion, I think the Spanish would have started sucking up to Hitler, even more so, because I mean... Him and Franco were pretty close. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't Franco have them come down and help them fight, like, the Spanish Civil War? Gave him an opportunity to kind of help out for training. So, at this point, because Stalin's kind of like, and the United States is in the war, obviously, at this point, and has been kind of sending over and doing things in the Pacific, we've also been a part of, essentially, they call it the Anglo... uh, what is it, like the Anglo forces or something like that? It would be essentially the British and the Americans. The white folks. Yes, the white folks. <laughs> They're the ones that are um, basically operating in North Africa and Italy. And Churchill is like, okay, you know, if we're going to go ahead and do any invasion, when Chir- or when Stalin first comes up to him, he's like, we need to do it through North Africa and Italy. That's, you know, where the defenses are going to be weakest. The Italians, I, no one had any respect for the Italians fighting. And I've never really heard anything about, like, great things. Like, you hear about, like, the fight that, like, the Nazis put up and everything. But you never hear anything about the Italians. Yeah, I think you probably... Hey, get out of our country. Like, was it more like a Scotty Pippen situation or was it more of like a Tony Kukoc situation? I think it was a situation in which Mussolini was not well-liked very early on in the war by his people. And I think he had a huge portion of the populace and even probably some of the armed forces that were like, eh, we shouldn't be in this. So you think that it was like, it wasn't... um... It's not the Italians that are holding off the Allies in the northern part of Italy. It's the Germans. So, I mean, the Italians have pretty much, as far as, like, being an army and a navy, they've pretty much been put out of the war at this point. Well, what did they think? They thought that Hitler was just going to be cool with them keeping all of their stuff after, like, world domination if it happened? I think they thought that maybe they would get everything within the Mediterranean. They would get some of, like, North Africa. I mean, it was all going to get chopped up. Japan wanted a ton of China. They were all going to have this area that they lorded over i just feel like hitler double-crossed everybody he ever tried to get in bed i'm with, sure so. there would have been something like that yeah definitely he's not going to want to as soon as he creates like the ultimate global empire he's not going to have to have like two other little empires within that yeah eventually he would have would end up stabbing them in the back so that ends up stalling halfway up italy just because of the terrain and because of the opposing forces so that doesn't work and they can't go in through southern france because that's the area that's still under the um vichy regime and although they're not openly hostile or anything like that if they were to be seen collaborating or not fighting back against the allies when the germans are still allowing them to exist wiped out they would have gotten wiped out i don't know if they could have at this point because of how what the strength the germans was but it wasn't they weren't going to risk it no and i'm sure that that was probably like a the Germans knew that. The Germans knew that there could be a little bit of... It also had to do with the ability to provide... Because a huge key to this is essentially air superiority and having control of the sky. So invading southern France, there weren't any places where they could have airfields that could successfully or efficiently like provide them air cover. They'd have to be launching over the Mediterranean out of certain places in Italy, and the flight time, I think, is too much. It's not like northern france and britain where i mean the distance right there over the channel at the widest is i think like 60 or 70 miles just a and, at the, and at the narrowest it's like 23 miles cliffs of dover to calais you can see france from britain 
yeah. that's going to come come into play. Very interesting. Big on this, yes. yeah. You still with me? Questions? Yeah, I just uh, it to me it makes total sense. Like Germany would definitely have to keep an eye on Vichy and just around there and be like, hey, we know that you guys aren't pumped to be here. So mm-hmm. if you do try to help America, like, A, we're going to wipe you up, but B, we're just going to watch this whole entire thing. Like, there's no collaboration that you're ever going to get with them. And, I mean, they're dealing with the French resistance, too. Did you know 2 to 3% of the French populace, like, participated in the French resistance? I don't know to what degree or anything, but there was a, I mean, that's a, if you take the French population and take 2 to 3, that's a lot of people. I can tell you this, um, if I was a French person that mm-hmm. got taken over and then I got all my shit back and they're like hey were you a part of the french resistance i'd look over one shoulder and over another shoulder but yeah i was 100 percent. i resisted uh, glad the you guys are back occupation well, well of course <laughs> <laughs> viva la resistance so in uh 43 there's this thing called the triton conference and the triton conference regardless uh, despite the name triton being the three points three, yeah i don't think stalin could get out of russia at that time uh, they met in other places like Tunisia and then someplace else. I think the three of them met. I can't remember what the name of the other conferences were. Oh, one of them was the Tehran conference hmm. that they all so met together. And in I, Iran? Yeah, I think so. So this one is just uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. And they determined during this time that what they're going to do is they're going to plan up, plan to build up their strength. This took place in 43. They're like, we can't do anything until 44. We're going to start building up our strength for the invasion of France. And... At this point, we're already sending stuff over to England, but I mean, this just ramps it up for equipment and soldiers and everything. At this point, in 43, 42, as soon as, you know, Japan had put us into this war, we knew we were going to be having to train people to invade France. So that's where you get, you know, all of the training here in the States. And then as soon as they have their orders, whatnot, start training, training, eh, transporting people over to England they do additional training for the invasion in England. They're not told essentially where they're invading or anything like that. They don't want information to get out. It's just, hey, we're just going to start training to be ready to do this. Well, and you just, you have to have everything there. And that's the logistics of a 1940s time. Like, you're going to be able to move a lot of stuff because you're in wartime. But just like the, I think it was the, yeah, so within five days, they had already transported, like five days after D-Day, they had already transported over 100,000 tons of just supplies over there. So, like, you have to be able to build that and ramp all that shit up. It's going to take you a year to get all your rations and everything ready. Just to, yeah, just to build up all the equipment that you need. Because here's the thing, too, is, I said this before during a podcast, but I think the thing that a lot of people lack, myself included, is when someone gives you information, the scope of things. Like, how how many ships this involved, how many men, how much equipment. Not only are you having to plan for something to where we have to first be able to get past the defenses on these beaches, try to establish a foothold in France, but then we have to be completely prepared to repulse any type of, like, here's the deal, like, Germany's on the mainland. All of their stuff is already there. They can just push all of it and move all of it to a certain area. There has to be a plan to get so many men and equipment and all that kind of stuff to, first of all, get past the defenses, like I said, 
but then also to set up positions to hold back any counterattack while more stuff just keeps coming in and coming in and coming in. We can we can do the surge. We can plan for the surge in three minutes, but it's the replenishments of everything that you need to continue yes. to hold and then push forward We have forward to get more. enough stuff here within a few days that essentially that we can counter anything that the Germans are going to try to push us back because the only thing at our back is the ocean. We have to go forward. There's not an opportunity once we get a foothold yeah. here to go back. Yeah, we can't just swim across the channel like it's... it's no, it's, it would be Dunkirk thing. all over again, except, you know, worse. Not because there's there was less men as part of, like, the initial landing, but then later on a lot more. But, you know, that's exactly what they don't want. They don't want another situation where they have people cut off on in Western Europe and no way to get back, and then that they end up just getting slaughtered. It's... It's it's crazy to think that like you're you're from you know Kansas. You sign up, you train. They're like, okay, we're sending you. Where am I going? Well, you're going to to England. Where's that? Like during the war, you would know where places were, and then you would hear about other things. Like, yeah, now you're going to be invading France. Being like, I never thought I was in Kansas a couple years ago, just like getting ready to farm my fields, and now you guys are telling me I'm supposed to jump in this boat, storm the beaches of a land I've never seen before under a hail of bullets, and just, like, I just accept that. I mean, I think that they would have been a little bit more prepared than that, just thinking about it, because during World War II, I'm sure, unless you were way, way out in the sticks, but even then, they the Army would have had to have come find you either to be drafted or if you went and volunteered. Mm -hmm. Like, World War II, I... And I could be completely wrong about this because I've never actually asked somebody to live during the time. Mm -hmm. But that just had to be all of the news. Like there, no, no, there, I'm sure. There couldn't have been much else going on. There was, but what I mean by that is as like a person psychologically being like a kid, like you're right out of high school, you're 18, 19. And the first thing that you go start to do is you start to essentially train to be in the military. You know, you go sign up. Most Most people signed up. I think most people enlisted versus being drafted in that war anyway, in World War II. Well, because you're coming right off the Great Depression, you're about to get a government salary. It's just the the thought to me, that's why I say, like, I think these were different people. Oh, 100% different from today. The, the, the way that they were able to just kind of step in and do this, and, you know, of course there were circumstances where people had breakdowns and freakouts and, uh -huh. you know, couldn't move and were paralyzed by fear, but, you know, once we get into the actual, what happened during that day and, like, the heroism... And the individual efforts of people to gather men and try to accomplish missions is, it's just, it's crazy. And hopefully we never have to be in a point in our society, in our world, where we ever have to, to call upon people to act like that again, hopefully. So, to go ahead and actually lead the invasion at this point, they uh, tap Dwight D. Eisenhower, familiar name? A little bit. And uh, appoint him the Supreme Commander... And there was some thought that they probably, they were like, why didn't they choose... Um, Armstrong? Is that his name? Who? British guy? Oh, the British guy was uh, Bernard Montgomery. Montgomery. So Armstrong. Eisenhower ends up picking him because it's a joint U.S.-British operation with also Canadians and stuff like that. They, he's like, well, I should probably have a Brit as my number two to essentially make sure that they have an equal, not an equal say, but essentially to make sure that they have a seat at the table to make these that decisions as part of the planning. Britain's not like, what the fuck, man? We've been getting bombed over here for yeah. 
forever. Exactly. Like we don't want to feel like we're being cut out, especially when these are like, um, half the men know that are doing this are British. Well, was it Eisenhower that had the success in North Africa? That was Patton. Patton. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the thing is people thought it would be Patton and they chose Eisenhower because from a political perspective, he was liked by more people. Patton was a little rough around the edges. Gruff didn't really care if he pissed off people. Eisenhower was presidential. I would almost say he was, he was pre-presidential. Yeah. But they said the thing that Eisenhower could do that he could do better than anyone is he could get people from different backgrounds to to come in and play ball, to participate. He he had a way of inspiring people to kind of put aside their differences to all, all work for the common good. So he was appointed, yeah, Supreme Commander, and then um, General Bernard Montgomery was in charge of the land forces. So Eisenhower, whole operation, Montgomery, basically formations of the troops where they're landing all that kind of stuff he was he was in charge of that once they once they got it going so how they end up settling on normandy and if anyone wants to pull out their phone look at a map the way france is set up between the english channel where england is the closest places we had kind of mentioned where the english channel was the shortest was between the cliffs of Dover, they're the white cliffs that are pretty famous, and um, this uh, city called Calais. And Calais was on the coast. I think it's 23 miles between the two. And Calais was like a port town. So it had a deep water port. Deep water ports were insanely important because you had to have a place to be able to offload equipment off of these large ships. You couldn't just roll a big ship up to the beach. It would beach itself. And there was no other way to unload equipment if, unless you were going to ferry it back and forth. It just wasn't efficient to do that. It took too long. You were vulnerable while your ships were out unloading stuff. And so the, the Nazis knew that an invasion of Europe was an eventuality and that it was coming And because they knew logistically what would be required to essentially establish a foothold, these port towns like Calais, especially Calais because it was so close to to Britain, and then another town called Cherbourg, which was essentially further to the west of Calais. And it was on a little peninsula, like a little 22-mile wide peninsula called the um, Continent Peninsula. But it was a deep port. And it was also a deep water port. It was a yeah. pretty large city. And so that was basically turned into a fortress as well. Well, next to the continent peninsula to essentially the east of that, that peninsula essentially caused kind of a little bay because it stuck out a little bit. And I can't remember the name of the bay, but that area when it came down into the flat bowl part of that bay, mm-hmm. that was Normandy. That was essentially the Normandy coast. It was the Normandy province or whatever they considered that section of Europe. And mind you, this section of Europe, these beaches that they're about to storm, like, years before the war, and probably right up to the war, these were like beach towns. Yes. These were like beach cities in France. They are France. now, too. They just got re retaken back over to be what they originally were. But yeah, I mean, they're a lot of, like, farming communities leading uh-huh. right up to the beach, and a lot of towns as well. Yeah, so you have these beautiful beaches that people are like going out and vacationing on that just get turned into a war zone and all these little beach towns and everything like that, which were for like vacation, 
when the Germans came and took them over, they took them over strategically because they knew that they needed to be able to... You already have existing structures, even if they're just houses. You have places to essentially maybe even disguise artillery or machine gun positions, things like that. But you need to have that front right up against England. Yes. You need to be as close to England as possible Mm -hmm. to be able to defend all that land. There were a couple operations that took place before um, Overlord, and they were, I think, in like 41 or 42... One of them was um, this, it was called like the Dieppe Raid. And basically it was a British raid on a German position that was like a refueling station for ships or something like that. And it it went pretty poorly for the British. Um, it wasn't executed well. They lost a couple ships and had to end up, uh, end up getting the fuck out of there. But they kind of learned some stuff from it. So after this took place, and I think there was maybe another smaller raid as well that took place, Hitler was like, okay, I feel like they're kind of, you know, prodding to see what's going on. So with this invasion being imminent from Britain, we need to establish some defenses. And so he establishes what's called the Atlantic Atlantic Wall. And the Atlantic Wall, basically, he considered what uh, Western Europe and all of Europe to be what he called Fortress Europa fortress Europe and along the Atlantic wall that stretched all the way from, Oh, where do I have it here? Irwin was the man that wanted to proceed on the wall. Wasn't he? Well, because Hitler, he, he, he comes in in a second. So what happens is between 42 and 44, Hitler orders it built and it spans from Norway to Spain it was supposed to be not like a wall in the sense of an unbroken like wall of china fortification uh-huh. type stuff like fucking game of thrones wall basically he wanted to establish i want to say over 15,000 defensive positions and wanted it manned by like 300,000 troops they didn't have that many troops at the time and because essentially that was his end goal for it but it had 2 years to be built well so norway and scandinavia and that whole area not the most um, hospitable for an invasion just because of the environment, all the fjords and everything like that. Um, no, and it, it, it's not a place where you want to roll into because it's a very easily defensed area. Like you're talking about with those uh, fjords. Geographically defensible, yes. Yeah, well, like you were talking about with those fjords, the Germans could hide boats in any of mm-hmm. those inlets. So if you're rolling in, they could have you trapped immediately. Or just have guns sitting essentially at the entrance yeah. of your, and you would never even get in there to land. Yeah, once you're past it, you're already right on target. It was 1,670 miles of fortifications. And of course, this is an unbroken line. You have geographic features like cliff sides and stuff Which like that that you don't have to build anything to on that you couldn't land anyone on anyway. But they're essentially building these defensive fortifications. These they call them gun encasements. They're basically when you see pictures of like German guns. It's the big cement buildings built like around the guns to house them. Uh, pillboxes, which were smaller concrete bunkers for uh, machine gun positions. Just a ton of these, like even just little single pits in the ground that had machine gun positions and everything over them. Well, part of that too was they were going in and. They were actually like flooding plains and swamps and areas to they try were, to mm-hmm. make sure that no American or no Allied force planes could land or they could drop supplies or anything like that. Yeah, so they, they flooded. They opened a bunch of dikes and everything and flooded pretty much a bunch of like because the farmers had it set up to where they had canal systems and yeah, stuff. It where, was farming exactly, country. The, exactly. So they had it set up where they could do, you know, this wasn't a, a time when you could see those big metal sprinklers that can go out over uh-huh. a farm field. It was all flood irrigation. So 
they had the ability to flood these fields to make sure that basically the only places to be able to go through were roads. Couldn't cut across countryside. It, it was more defensible that way. But this Atlantic Wall, for these two years that it's being built before the invasion, it's basically like 80 to 90% conscripted workers from occupied countries. It's pretty much like occupied slave labor to build this. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, who, I mean, the Germans of all people have plenty of extra labor that they can use to to make this shit happen yeah. if they need to. And so eventually Erwin Rommel, because he's been kicked out of Africa by Patton and everything, and I, Hitler, Hitler loves Rommel for some reason. I mean, Rommel was very successful in everything like that, but... Last um, name's kind of sweet. It is. The Desert Fox yeah, was, his, that, was his nickname. That's even a decent nickname. But Hitler kind of holds him in pretty high esteem. So he assigns Erwin um, Rommel to essentially oversee the completion and the kind of reinforcement of the Atlantic Wall to make it stronger. They know this invasion's coming. So cities that they think that the Allies are going to want to get to, they basically turn them into fortresses and then just try to scatter defensive positions kind of along the entirety of that 1,670 miles. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Rommel was more of a proponent for the Atlantic Wall. The H-Man really thought that Calais and Cherbourg were going to be the areas. He was 100% convinced that it was Calais. So, yeah, he he was, build the Atlantic Wall, do what you have to, but he's like, Calais where they're going to hit. Like, all you're mm-hmm. doing is making sure, like, secondary attacks can't happen there. They're coming to Calais. Exactly. And part of the reason why he thought it was going to be Calais is because there was this thing called Operation Bodyguard, of which Operation Fortitude was a part of. Operation Fortitude, go back, listen to the episode, but basically it's a misinformation program that is meant to provide intel and misdirection as to where the invasion is actually going to happen. One of the coolest military programs I've yes. ever heard of. Um, not only was it like radio transmissions and all that kind of stuff, but they created an entire army called the Ghost Army, and that they actually put Patton in charge of. That kind of served twofold. Well, actually, onefold, I guess. Patton, they thought Patton was the one that would be the most likely candidate to lead the invasion. Of course if they know that he's in charge of this ghost army, they're going to go and pay more attention to him. Well, what the ghost army was actually made of, as we cover in Fortitude, it was basically this huge project where they would have military barracks and camps set up and tanks and trucks, but they were all decoy inflatable, built with wood and canvas, and it would make it look like there was this massing of troops and equipment in certain sections and they led them to believe that that was going to be a buildup more so on the west, or I'm sorry, on the east coast of Europe, which was closer to Calais. So it kind of kept their attention focused there. They basically built a, a stage show mm-hmm. of army buildup to where these guys were running around. Like, they spent their entire days making it seem like the army was getting bigger and bigger. And then they spent their entire nights on making noise, um, driving around to make different like cat tracks and things like that. So when the morning came around, they're like, holy shit, there's a bunch more stuff over there. They moved a lot in that night. Like they're coming this way. And here's the thing too, is during this time frame, the German, um, the, oh, what is it? The Luft, Luftwaffe? Luftwaffe. Yeah. So the Luftwaffe, they've been really like reduced in strength. And because the Americans have joined at this point, now all of those planes and everything like that are are bolstering up the RAF and the Allies. So, I mean, they have 
pretty strong dominance over Britain and then also over the English Channel and sections of like Western Europe. So to get like they're doing this operation to for misdirection everything just on the chance that one of these planes gets through, they intercept a transmission and can see these massing. And I mean, the German, you know, the German high command did end up finding out about this, but they bought it hook, line and sinker and thought that these were actually troop movements. And so very easily too. like it, it, they put on a great show, but it seems like the Germans are like, well, this is what we think. And this is what they're telling us. Well, so. I mean, and it wasn't just what they were seeing. It's also what they were hearing from people that they thought they were, were their spies that they had within, like, the Allied camp that were giving them information, and those spies were then saying, like, yeah, I think it's going to be Calais. And so they thought they were getting this inside info, but really it was essentially part of the British operation to be like, yeah, tell the Germans that this is what we're going to do. Which uh, it's something that you don't think is a military strategy, but holy shit, is it a military strategy? Well, when you have, like, one shot at this, it's so important that you, you know, you pull out all the stops and there's, there's nothing that you won't do to try to make sure that this is successful. So kind of part of the problem now is we know, you know, the allies know we can't hit one of these deep water ports. That's completely crucial for us to, you know, be able to ship in supplies and everything. Oh, Oh, sorry. Um, do you think part of choosing Patton to run, um, the ghost army might've played a little bit into did, that come about before Rommel was kind of introduced as Hitler's number two. Cause if Patton beat the shit out of Rommel down in North Africa, maybe Rommel would like want to focus on him more. I don't, yeah, I don't know when you think it was a head game like that. I don't even? think it was a head game. I think that because he did beat Rommel, I think that they thought that he was the allies. Number one guy okay. that was going to be taking the reins on any of the big operations. So, I mean, kind of, because he did beat Rommel, I think that gave him There wasn't, like, an axe to grind for Rommel, though. I'm sure there probably also was in, in regards to that, too. I mean, there there had to have been, right? A little bit? Yeah. I, you get kicked out of a country by this guy. I mean... If you're prideful in what you're doing, you're going to have some feelings. Well, one of the things that Rommel did, too, they placed over, like, six million mines along the French coast. And like in fields and everything like that behind just, you know, just to go ahead and deter or to essentially hold off, you know, any invasion force. There's no no better way to do that. Like the way that they had everything set up with those and then with like the blockades and shit that they built mm-hmm. on the beaches. Like it's so low tech and seems so simple, but it's so fucking effective. Yeah, I mean, on on any of the the smaller beaches and everything that they thought that there could be, you know. Of course, they're looking at a beach and being like, yeah, they could land people here. Mm. They didn't think that they would, but they're like, just in case, you know, they could land a diversionary force or something. So the main things that they used on the beaches were they used these things called Belgian Belgium gates. And they were like, I'm trying to think, you ever see those things that catch trash at the dump? They're supposed to keep trash from blowing everywhere. They're those giant like yeah. chain link windscreens. Uh-huh. It kind of looked like that, except at the top it was kind of angled like in a semicircle. And basically they would put them under the water line. So if any of the landing craft or boats were riding up on them, it would tip them over. They would also put... Um, they had floating mines out in the water too, didn't they? I, they, they weren't floating, but they were chained down to stay in place. Because if they were floating, then they would just travel with the current. Uh, yeah, but I mean like out in the water. They, they, they did. They had, they had mine. The water was mined around that area and kind of... Uh, 
they planted a lot of stuff either they had to differentiate between low tide and high tide because they didn't know when an invasion was going to happen i there just in that one point i'm out as a military leader i wouldn't have thought at all about that like where the that comes in huge yeah and it does and that's yeah. that's what i'm saying like knowing how it all comes into play and then realizing that that was such a strategic mm-hmm. move to pull i don't think i'd have come up with that if i had to be in charge they also would do <clears throat> it look almost like kind of a tripod with like a big stick like angling out or not angling out angling in toward the beach basically the same kind of principles the belgian gate if it was a log they would drive up on it it would tip the boat over and swamp it stab in because most of these boats were made of plywood Yep, or or wreck the bottom of the boat, uh-huh. rip the hole up and everything. But they would also put mines on these things too, where if you hit one of them, they would then just literally put a post in the ground and set a mine on top of it. If you went over that and the boat dropped down and hit that. And then they had, um, there's the things you always see like if you're looking at like the Berlin Wall, the, what do they call them? The hedgehogs. It's the three pieces yes. of metal uh-huh. that are the angles just in there like, yeah. That's what I thought when I said blockade. I just saw a bunch of those. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't get, they rotate. And if you try to drive armor up over them, they flip Mm -hmm. over and yeah, you can't get past them. So basically they have those completely and Rommel's like, let's get a shit ton of these and let's put them all over the the beaches and everything to make sure that they can't, if someone's going to try to invade, they can't land any landing craft or tanks or, you know, any type of equipment. So you can't invade a deep water port because they're all super heavily defended and this is something i found out why a deep water port was so important it made sense to me that you wanted to get ships in and unload stuff but it was also a timing thing so all equipment at this point had to come that was coming from you know know, the united states or the united states had to go to england at that point it had to be unloaded from those ships waterproofed put onto landing craft, then sent across the English Channel to go onto, like, the beaches. Mm-hmm. If you had a deep water port, the ship never even had to go to England. It could go directly into, onto mainland Western Europe, into France, and they could just unload all of the equipment, soldiers. They never had to send even soldiers to England at that point. Oh, Everyone so they just, just weren't sent. hitting the middleman. Exactly. And so it saved that much time for stuff to get offloaded and unloaded on the... You, you, cut out needing landing craft and all that kind of stuff. It was extremely important to be able to, this whole game is a logistics thing. It's all about being able to resupply. Like it's like a delivery from Costco. It is. How many of these battles are lost simply because they don't have the fuel. Like the Germans don't have the fuel to make an advance and how much equipment has to be left because it runs out. Like you don't get like, you got to feed all your troops. You have to be able to fuel and service all of the equipment that they're using. You have to be able to provide them with ammunition, not only for them personally, but for all of the artillery pieces and all the tanks and all that kind of shit. There was something stupid that I heard, and I I almost dove in on it immediately. I don't remember if it was either 1,000 gallons or 10,000 gallons. They said that it was one of those two numbers was the amount of fuel that you would need to sustain a full blown, like full going army. It was a thousand, hour. it was a thousand a day, I think, or something like that. It was a thousand gallons for the tanks that they put out. It might've been a thousand. Was it a thousand an hour? I thought it was a thousand. An okay. Hour. I think it, yeah. So, Which, I mean that, that tells you and fuel alone, that's one of the hardest things because you're burning through almost quicker than anything else. And it's the hardest to ship because it's so heavy that you're using. Yeah, you're not getting any of it from. Fuel to get it there. It's like um, it's like backwoods camping. You're not getting anything once you get there. There's nothing. You have to assume there's nothing for you to use. You have to bring everything with you. So not only are you needing to supply your soldiers, but even in the situation where you know the soldiers are storming the beaches and the the paratroopers that are going to jump out, these guys have to carry equipment for at least like 
three or four days on end, thinking that they might be relieved at that point, but not really knowing. They just have to have this stuff to be able to survive for you know multiple days during this invasion. Uh, there was another one that they were talking about where they said that paratroopers were jumping out of planes with like 100 pounds of shit on them. Yeah, they would have these, um, and we'll get into a little bit more, but they eventually developed these leg bags that they would strap to their leg, and it was basically a duffel bag that strapped to your leg that was an extra like <laughs> 60 pounds, and you were carrying like the other 40 on yourself. Well, they introduced them like right as they were like getting ready to load up without like a lot of testing, load guys up on the planes. They, all the stuff in there, as soon as they hit like the prop blast, when they jumped out, uh-huh. the bags were just ripped off their legs in like almost all circumstances, like almost all accounts. Well, there's that, but at the same time, if by some, if by the grace of God, you land with that mm-hmm. and you're say a 140 pound soldier, 160 yeah. pound soldier, your ass isn't carrying around a hundred pounds of anything anywhere for a long period of time. No, I mean, yeah, you're at that point and everything, you're ditching pretty much anything that you may think you won't need. Yeah. And and just going with that. But, I mean, some guys were jumping out with fucking, like, radios and stuff. Can you imagine how much a radio with, like, batteries and shit would weigh back then? And light, the light tubes or whatever they mm-hmm. were, the random and all that? Nah, yeah, that's... I just... The thought of jumping out of those planes... The thought of jumping out of a plane now with, like, all the new shit that we have mm-hmm. and everything like that, terrifying. These guys were doing it with a 100-pound strap to them. Like, what... What kind of mindset do you have to be in? Be like, this is okay. I'm not, not going to die. Not only jumping out with that, but the whole invention of paratroopers and like jumping out of a plane behind enemy lines is still such a new concept that you're like, this is already fucking sketchy enough that I had this big thing of silk <laughs> over me that's supposed to like deploy and bring me to the ground. But now you want me to just keep strapping on weight. Like at what point is this more, even more unsafe? Well, and more to your, these people were different point. Probably not a lot of these people had been on an airplane even in their lives. No, think there was almost no. The advent of commercial aviation was little to nothing. Yeah, I, I, I don't point. know where it would be. Um, God, yeah, that would be insane. Um, I did hear one thing: why people chose to be one of the reasons why guys would select to be in the paratroopers is you would make like an extra fifty dollars a month. Uh, this is going to sound dark, but my whole thought process behind being a paratrooper is if I'm going to die out there, I would rather smash into the ground and have it over with than mm-hmm. like be on the battlefield getting shot. <laughs> well, you're also getting shot out in the air, so you have yeah. to kind of... But like, if I'm going to die, I'd rather have it be instant than like have some German oh, yeah. come over and, and off me or anything. I feel like, like I'm in more control even floating down yeah. in the air of my own fate rather than just like charging out of a boat onto a beach. Well... Not to mention, uh, we'll get into it probably in the second episode, but the people that were on the ground, you can't have a dummy. They sent a bunch of fucking dummies out of these planes, mm-hmm. which is so cool. Yeah. Like, just so brilliant to think of, like, we're going to waste a parachute, but mm-hmm. it's going to be another chance that this looks like an actual human that they'll try to shoot at. Oh, yeah. There's there's a little, like, caveat to those dummies that I don't know if you read about. Was it when they hit the ground? No. Or- the fact it, that they didn't have any legs or anything, it looked like no, a sack of flowers. they were only two feet tall. Uh, that, yeah, that's what I mean. They, but they because big. of the distance and the silhouette Doesn't and everything matter. like that, and then when they did hit the ground, they had, like, fireworks strapped yep. to them, so they would make, like, like poppets almost, or, like, black cats to where it would sound like gunfire, so uh-huh. it would attract attention. So they would assume that that mm-hmm. bag of flour that they just threw out there was firing a weapon. Yeah. So Churchill doesn't like... The, the whole plan about invading Europe, he still thinks that they should pour resources and try to push through somehow in either South France or, or through Italy. He ends up getting overruled, essentially, because I think 
as far as like equipment stuff goes, the United States is providing the bulk of it. And we're thinking Western Europe is probably, or going through Normandy is going to be the best bet. So the Normandy coast that's selected, this was something also that I hadn't, I guess, looked into too much is how wide it was. So the entire invasion front, it's 50 miles wide. That doesn't seem that big. Okay, it doesn't. But if you're thinking about that, I always had it envisioned in my head when I thought about this is, you know, you have the beaches that are divided up. So within this 50-mile stretch, there's five designated landing zones. Those five designated landing zones are then like almost subdivided up. But the way that they divide them initially through the five landing zones, you have going from west nearest to Cherbourg and the Continent Peninsula, going east, you have uh, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach. Utah Beach, American plan. Yep. Omaha, American. I mean, um, not American plan, American troops. American troops, yeah. yeah. American troops. Plan for Americans. Exactly. Um, Omaha, U.S. again. Um, Then Gold Beach, which was British. After that was Juneau, which was Canadian. And then some sword. Brits in, in there. Yeah, too. exactly. And then on the far east of the of the invasion area was Sword Beach. And that was, again, British. I like how they didn't even give the Canadians their own beach. <laughs> like, we know that Canadians are such nice people. Like, you need some Brits over there. I think there it was to... also a numbers game, yeah, too. Yeah, it could be. But Yeah, and there, I don't know, you know, you were also needed probably, like, a connection to British command and everything as well. So well, Utah Beach wasn't, they initially were going to try to do this plan um, the month before. So instead of June 6th of 44, they were going to try to do it in May. Utah beach wasn't added at this point. I think during part of the planning when they noticed and they were looking at Cherbourg and that continent peninsula only being 22 miles wide, they basically added Utah because it was kind of on the side of the peninsula. It was separated by a river between it and Omaha called like the Dew river. And it was a pretty big gap. But I think they did that and created that front on Utah to try to take that because then they knew that they could cut off that peninsula and then take Cherbourg a little bit easier. And that ended up being the plan is after the forces on Utah landed, they had them then cut off the peninsula to where Germans couldn't receive reinforcements and then slowly just work their way towards Cherbourg. Well, that was the whole plan with D-Day was they had these five landing zones, um, which I have a a question I don't know if you're going to know the answer to. But they had these five landing zones, and then once they hit, they took their areas, and then there would be meetup points where they would basically collect as, like, these are our link points. Yeah. So we're going to have our areas that we go through and attack and clear out, but then we're going to meet back up, and then the next plan is to go after X city. Yeah. So, so try to kind of put kind of try to envision this. So it, it's the 1940s. So this isn't like road systems. And especially in this area, there's not a lot of main roads. A lot of it is like farm country. It's just a bunch of like squared farm fields with like the hedgerows and everything like that. And then not a lot of connectivity between them. So you have these separate beaches and they're separated by miles. And part of my thought process was when I was looking at this, and I think to yours is, I thought there was an opportunity essentially that like you could be redirected from one beach to another. It wasn't like that. No, you had to go pretty far inland, couldn't you? Yes. So you had to be able to establish essentially, and that was part of the whole point of the paratrooper drop. So um, Operation Neptune was essentially the seaborne invasion to those um, sectors on the beach. Within each... um, sector of the beach, you would then have little subdivided sectors. So in Omaha, there was like uh, dog one or like dog white, and they were 
broken up by color. And then certain regiments or divisions or, you know, the companies were assigned essentially to assault these specific sectors or anything. And you would have to then, like you were saying, you would have to then penetrate inland for at least a mile or a couple miles to the point where then you could link up with the other forces coming in. Because some of these were separated, like these beachheads were separated by like canals, flooded fields. Um, In the case of Utah and Omaha, separated essentially by an entire river. Oh, yeah, that's right. So part of the plan also is, yeah, you have to worry about getting through that initial Atlantic wall. But then what's going to end up being behind it? How long is it going to take us to get past the Atlantic wall? And how much time is that going to give once the Germans know what we're up to, to basically bring up all their forces to cut us off and pin us close to the ocean? So the airborne element of it, basically, it... On the British side over by like Sword and Juno, that was going to be the British Airborne's area. And then the Continent Peninsula, I'm not sure behind Omaha, but I know behind uh, Utah Beach, that was going to be where the 82nd and 101st Airborne were going to drop. So they would drop like 10, 15, you know, somewhere between like 5 to 10 miles behind enemy lines and would have specific areas that they would have to capture, strategic crossroads, towns, bridges to be able to get across canals and rivers because if they control the bridges they could stop any type of german counterattack from getting across those waterways and if necessary have to you know be able to blow those bridges to cut off access from the germans being able to essentially attack yeah for lack of a better term they're trying to circumcise off the the beach Mm -hmm. in order to once they take over all that Airborne's going to bomb everything off. They're going to cut off that head so we can start building up. And then when it comes time to either hold them at those spots or take them over, we're built up. So not only were groups of these guys supposed to essentially establish like positions to hold off counterattack, they also had missions behind enemy lines because not just on the beach, but for miles back behind it, the Germans had artillery positions. And you would not even to the point where these artillery positions could see the ocean. And they would have spotters, essentially, that were there on the beaches or like, you know, looking over the beaches within these bunkers, calling down artillery strikes on these beaches. Everything was pre-sighted. So one thing Rommel made sure they did is any area on the beach could be covered by essentially a machine gun or another gun. You could catch them in a crossfire. There were no safe places on this beach. It's all been pre-sighted. It's also been sighted in by all these artillery pieces that were potentially, you know, hundreds of yards, if not, you know, half a mile or a mile back from the beach. And part of the reason they knew all this is kind of leading up to Fortitude in the two months before the invasion, starting in April, they did over 3,200 recon flights. And they would take these planes and they would strip all of the ammo out of them, lighten them up to where they were fast as shit, put cameras on them, and do low area reconnaissance over the entire French coastline. They couldn't just do Normandy. Because you would notice if all these planes are flying yeah, over Normandy. You have to spread it out. You have to take pictures of shit you know you're not going to invade that may come in handy later. But So, yep, to fool the Germans, they did this over the entire coast of northern France. They would send these missions out just for fooling. They would do the same thing with the pre-bombardment missions for the planes that were trying to take out like radar mm-hmm. centers and stuff like that. They would have to bomb all the entire coast just to hide where they were going just to soften up this one target. So through all of these pictures, they also, the BBC put out a, um, 
call for anyone that had been vacationing yes, in France. This was fucking nuts. Put out a call for anyone that had pictures of um, the coast of France, and I think they ended up having something like like ten thousand. It was more, more than that. It was, it was it way more, more than okay. that. Submissions of all of these, and they were able to use a portion of them to establish essentially like positions on beaches, um, possible places where they would put like armaments and everything. So a lot of that information, that's why they were able to plan out and be like, okay, this is where some of this artillery is going to be because of these recon flights and also because they knew strategic positions, high ground, things like that. Well, and it's when you try to bring the public into it, Again, these places were beach towns, so there were pictures taken all mm-hmm. over everywhere. So not as to say, like, hey, there's going to be, like, military installations in these travel pictures, mm-hmm. but we're going to know the ins and the outs. We're going to know the bays, the creeks. I'm sure each one of these pictures had, like, a specific place that was written down. They were also talking to, they had communication with the French resistance, and so people that were from this area that were within the French resistance were telling them, here's where this town is, here's where this bridge is. Um, here's this position, here's this. They also had people in the French resistance that were reporting to them troop movements and troop strengths from the Germans. So they were getting all this information to know essentially where the weak points and the strong points were when they were planning for this invasion. So there's, there's so many things being taken into account, which is also why it takes so long to essentially build up into plan. Yeah, I, again, we said a year like it was a super long time. There's not a fucking chance it was a long oh, time. It, it, was, it was being planned from before a year before this. I, but just to, like, for the buildup and everything like that. To, it, to pick a spot so to fast. figure out where, yeah. And, I mean, they, they knew it had to happen. And meanwhile, it's not like we just paused the fighting during this. We're just, like, we're trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. We're mm-hmm. holding them off and having skirmishes in other places while trying to enact this whole thing. Well, and here's the and thing. And we're fucking fighting Japan. Yeah. And here's the thing, too, is like, you know, German High Command, Rommel, they they also had paratroopers. Like, Germany also had paratroopers. They used them during the invasion of France. I think they used them um, during some of the Russian campaigns. But they knew, essentially, that part of the invasion would also include an airborne, like, element to it. So, like, in all these, like, open fields, they would put up these, like, sharpened wooden stakes, and they called them... Um, Romsparagus, but it was like, it, that was the German, it was almost asparagus. Uh-huh. And um, they also, the Germans had used gliders, I think, like in Greece and Italy and everything. I had no idea about these things. Gliders are, these gliders are fucking awesome. Like some of the operations, I have one in here that it's, it'll fucking blow your mind. Huh. So they would then fill these fields essentially with the same type of like stakes, except they would put like mines on them to take out these gliders if they were trying to land. So, I mean, they were, they were, as prepared as they could be at the time, but they, something came out to say that like the Atlantic wall in those areas was only like 18%. Rommel said it. Or something like that. 18%. He said something too, like two weeks before the invasion, he said, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, our defenses are sufficient to be able to hold off an invasion. If I have two more weeks, um, I'll change that to supremely confident or something like that. (laughs) Bro, not if you're at eighteen percent. Yeah, two more weeks might get you to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as far as like the the planning, the misleading, everything like that, uh, you know, they've done as much as they can. Um, they start building up. You know, once they realize what the um, what it's going to take, the time frames to get everyone mobilized they kind of have to get a date in mind. Well, one thing that's really going to be dependent on is going to be the weather. And 
You would getting think... into my guy Stag. Hmm? You getting into my guy Stag. So Stag was the British dude, right? Yep, the RAF. Okay, RAF guy. So yeah, so he was the one in charge of the weather operations, um, and there were some guys, essentially two from the United States, that were like Eisenhower's guys. That were like their meteorologists and everything. So basically, to do this, you need not completely calm seas, but you need calmer seas. One of the reasons for that is, yeah, you have like larger ships bringing guys in. But once you got them to a certain point out in the English Channel, you had to then put them on the transport, like the landing craft boats. Mm -hmm. These things were like flat-bottomed, like you said, made out of plywood Mm -hmm. and everything. And these, even with the conditions that they actually launched the operation, they still lost some of these things because they got swamped, they got flipped over. A flat-bottomed boat is not stable, especially in the ocean. And the reason they had to be flat-bottomed is because it reduces the draft of the boat. That's how much it sits in the water. They had to get it, and I think these boats end up having like three feet of draft, so they could get almost all the way up to the beach before that front would lower down. Yeah. But you have to be able to get these guys to the beach, so you need at least somewhat, you know, calmer seas. You also had to have a time when it was high tide, and they wanted it. They didn't want it at total high tide because it would disguise all of the obstacles in the water, and they couldn't avoid them or or go around them. Yeah, you're going in blind. But they needed it to, but the advantage of high tide is you're getting your guys that much closer to the defenses. They don't have to cross, you know, this entire piece of land without any cover. Again, the drawback from that is maybe you don't even get your guys to that point because you can't see any of the obstacles. So they had to wait for a time when they could predict that it would be like the tide was actually midway, but it was going in. So it would carry the boats in more. But you could still see some of the obstacles. So that had to come into play for the date. Um, it had to be a night with a full moon for the airborne drops to be able to have the airborne be able to see what they're doing once they got on the ground. And so there were like every month there would be like or every like two or three weeks, there would be these three day stretches that would like fall into to line or something on this that would have all, if not most of the, uh-huh. the qualifications. So initially, they were going to plan it, like I said earlier, for May, but then they wanted to add Utah Beach on there in that section of it, so they delayed it for another month. And initially, it was supposed to take place on the the night or the, the early, early, early morning of June 5th, so like midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And at that point, this is when James Stagg te- steps up and he says, listen, there's too much fog there's too much cloud cover. Seas are too rough at this point. I don't recommend going through this. I think it's going to be, it's going to cause too many issues. Um, you know, this is already going to be difficult enough to pull off. We don't need this kind of weather getting in our way. And the American dudes were basically telling Eisenhower, no, 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 we got to do this now. If we don't do this now, the next date that we can do this, if we get delayed, it's going to be two or three weeks from now. We've already got every, you know, all this buildup done and, someone's going to find out about it and it's going to ruin this, you know, ruin the surprise of this operation. In like typical American fashion, when the guy said it, the guy that's over there in the Royal Air Force that has flown in this weather and done everything That's else. my fucking point exactly. Yeah. Like this guy literally lives here uh-huh. and studies this specifically, like the channel weather and everything. Like, thankfully, like Eisenhower is smart enough. He's like, I'm going to listen to the, the local dude. That probably knows what he's doing here. I, I know how Americans work because they not only said that that fifth would be good, but then they're like, oh, yeah, no, the storm's hitting on the sixth. So we're going to be like right in the middle of that. So the question is, at this point now, you've got the date picked out and everything. How do you how do you time this thing? 
Because it's not like you can just like send in a few things at a time or anything and be like, okay, you're loaded up, you go ahead and take off. Everything has to be ready to go at once. And so on, I want to say they have to start, you know, because they're having to load all of these craft with equipment, tanks, jeeps, all the guys that they're going to have to load, they end up bringing over somewhere in the neighborhood of between like a hundred and I think they transport 132,000 troops by sea during the initial invasion. Some of these guys had to be loaded up and sit on the boat for a week. Well, I just, you would have to load these guys up on a boat, put the boat off, you know, off the, or like out of the Harbor and anchor it to bring in another boat to load up more equipment and more guys. So some of these guys were sitting there on the boat for a week just waiting for this to happen. Well, and I'm assuming, too, you probably have to... The landing vessels that they took over to Normandy, mm-hmm. they couldn't have driven those the entire way No, no, over, no, you right? couldn't... No, the, they were called Higgins boats. And but they were loaded onto another boat they and had to get transported. Loaded, exactly, and then once they got to the... Um, stopping point, the invasion point, it was 10 miles out that they loaded these guys onto these boats and they still had to go through 10 miles of the channel to get there. It was that, that to me, like, just think about that. Like you're 10 miles out, they load you. You're already like, have you seen like some of the pictures of the boats? Like they're where the guys are standing. Yeah. They're almost like not quite eye line with the water if they were to look over, but their heads are barely above it. Uh, And this is, I think what I said to you the other night, I completely undersold the thought of how bad being seasick out there would be. Like that little boat just getting thrashed uh, around. Well, and not only that, but you get seasick on this 10 mile ride or wherever you are on this landing Mm -hmm. vessel. You could be as sick as you've ever been in your entire life. And as soon as that front gate stops, I'm sure even before that, you start hearing bullets whiz by you. So you have to pull yourself out of being sick and feeling like you're going to die already not to only that, getting dude, shot at. Not only that, when you got close enough to the beach, you probably heard mortars dropping in the water yeah. trying to and machine gun fire. The entire time you're going in, though, that 10-mile stretch, the Navy is just letting loose behind you, trying to bombard this. So you're just hearing naval fire and just these shells whizzing over your head just just constantly so there's literally you getting tossed around by the ocean guys bumping into you guys probably getting sick and thrown up you got this shit going on over your head and you know that you're just sitting there hoping firstly that you make it to the beach because guess what you're packed down with your however Uh many pounds of equipment and if your boat starts going down you're not wearing a uh, life vest no And the other thing, too, is they said that at certain points that there were guys on these landing craft that were bailing water out of the landing craft with their helmets. You use whatever you have. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, trying to keep that thing fucking afloat, I'm sure you do. So the buildup to this, they're loading all these guys onto ships. There were 20 different points around Britain that these ships were being loaded up. And being sent off from Mm -hmm. because they couldn't have them concentrated in one spot. It would kind of they would show their hand. So the 20 departure points all over Britain would meet up at this place they called Piccadilly Circus off the Isle of Wight. And the Isle of Wight is kind of like a northern point. It's almost, if you're looking at Normandy and you draw a straight line up to Britain, it's an island off the coast of Britain, (laughs) really close to it. So Piccadilly Circus was basically the meetup point for all these ships. There were over or nearly 5,000 landing and assault craft on this. 
they didn't have a huge number of like naval, like naval warfare vessels. I think total they had like five battleships, um, a couple cruisers, and then like a bunch of destroyers. So they didn't have a ton of like naval support. Uh, some one of the naval guys was like, we should have had a lot more naval support to bombard the coast. Yeah. But it was it's still is the largest gathering essentially the largest collection of vessels for like an invasion or gathering ever by a wide margin by too. a wide margin in human history there were a couple um that took place essentially in i think in the pacific during a couple invasions that kind of scratched getting a little close but not not to the point where you even get close to surpassing it when you have three countries working together to do this so you have a lot of manpower I, and just uh, like you were talking about needing more mili- or needing more navy naval presence and everything mm-hmm. like that, you couldn't do it because you had to provide the illusion that you could be anywhere. You could be in Calais. You could be in Cherbourg. I like, think part of it too is because you also had some of your navy down in the Mediterranean. You also had ships. You know, a majority of the United States ships were over in the Pacific. Yeah, they, everybody was had engagements. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, and one of the other things, too, I mean, we touched on the French resistance a little bit. So leading up to June 6th, the French resistance kind of went into to overdrive and did a ton of, like, sabotaging phone lines, communication, railways, pretty much anything they could do to cut off communication and cut off ways to get to Normandy by, like, German reinforcements. The French connection in this is so weird. It's because right then and there, I mean, we had to have been talking to them somehow. We had to have gotten spies in for them to I'm sort sure of did. know the plan. We were able to communicate with Garbo. Yeah. In France and everything. That's that true. was via letter, but I'm sure we had people. There were, and it's not like missions weren't taking place during the lead up to Overlord. There were um, a ton, like maybe 30 missions where um, allied engineers would take mini subs and then literally like swim to the beaches where they were going to invade, taking sand samples and trying to do like scouting and everything because they needed to make sure that the sound sand would be able to support the tanks. It's like a geological James Bond. Exactly. And they were trying to go ahead and get a lay of like where they were putting out defenses, what it would take to clear the defenses for paths for the tanks to get through and everything. So, I mean, they were doing scouting missions. These guys were literally like, just like you're talking about James Bond dressed in black, like SAS type shit, where they were like crawling onto these beaches to, to try to do these like spy and scouting reports. Um, I do have to take a pee real quick and then I just want to get into essentially what the Germans are doing leading up to this. And uh, we got to talk about the specialty weapons too. And we'll talk about the specialty weapons. So fucking funny. Yeah. All right. Well, we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business. You can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high POD. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically HI. All right. And back to our show. All right. Back in it. Yeah. The. We'll talk about the specialty ones first, because then that kind of goes along the side of like what the allies are planning. And then we'll kind of move into what the status and where the where the Germans are standing at this point, right pre-invasion. We we pulled out some shit and I don't know 
I mean, I wouldn't call these exactly like super technological advances. It seems like we just slapped a lot of things together that were going to be like necessary items in what we That's were doing. Even, I like thinking about it like that even more. Yeah. The, the ingenuity to be like, hey, what are we running into and what do we need? And then just having this guy, Major General Percy Hobart, He's one of those people that he looks at something and sees something that yeah. you, nobody else sees. Yeah, he's redneck art to like to the max. So Hobart, he is kind of the inspiration for what will become known as Hobart's Funnies. And Hobart's Funnies are basically a line of tanks. <laughs> they're just they're tank alterations. Yeah. And so he would take like the Sherman or the Churchill tanks and basically make them available to do like all these other jobs. Like if you've ever seen images or ever heard essentially about the DD tanks, they were tanks. <laughs> I, I don't understand the concept behind this. So maybe you can help walk me through this. Okay. A tank is just one of the most insanely heavy things that you would think of, right? Yeah. Yep. If you're going to think of something that cannot float and should not be put in water, would a tank be high on that list? Uh, rock one, tank two. Okay. It's basically just a tank. A uh, rock is just has doesn't have gap in it and can't fire a shell. It's made of a different mineral. <laughs> yes. This guy developed a tank that had propellers on the back and then had a giant canvas sleeve that extended off the top like a turtleneck and the thing would float. <laughs> well, would float and floated are two different things. Well, the, some of them, okay, here's the thing though. They worked. The situations in which they didn't work were not the fault of the tank itself. I'm, I'll explain this. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I know where you're getting at. The fact that they were launched too far out and that kind of a yes. thing. Yes. But still, it, to call something the Donald Duck and to develop it, and what were the well, numbers? Well, it was a direct, it was like direct drive. It wasn't, they called it the Donald Duck yeah. the DD, but it was like direct drive because it had the two propellers out the back. But how many of them actually made it to the battlefield? Uh, if you're talking about the ones that the British brought in, like on a percentage basis, like eight eighty percent, and if you're talking about on the American side, it's literally like fifteen or twenty percent. I thought they said it was on Omaha that it was they only got like six out of the thirty that they they dropped. got like no like forty seven out of the sixty two or something like that sunk on Omaha. That's what I mean. Yes, there was a ton of them that sunk. There yeah. weren't a lot of them that made it. It's to the not because of the tanks. I mean, okay, first of all. A tank doesn't float. So yeah. already you're playing with yeah. fucking physics. You're you're tickling, you're tugging the tiger's tail. But you also, the reason that they sunk is because they floated, but it's not like a fucking ocean-going craft. <laughs> and the British that had much more, and when we get into the actual events of D-Day, when we throw some numbers at you, it'll make sense. The British would launch these things at like, 3,000 yards away from the beach. The Americans are launching these things at 6,000. A ways further out. And you're like, well, that's only double, so they should only lose twice as many as they shouldn't lose. No, like the farther you get out, the fucking rougher and choppier and bigger the waves get. So even an extra 100 or 200 yards is going to make a huge deal. But yeah, he designed, so the amphibious tanks... Um, designed tanks that essentially had this giant cylinder on the front with a bunch of chains that was a flail that would just drive along and it would just hit all of the mines and detonate all the mines to clear a path. And to, I'm sure a lot of the things 
blow up like the hedgehogs and get those out of the way. Get those out of the way or just, like it just chew up yeah, like just a barbed a wire enforcements and stuff like where that. Where we can send men up. They also had almost like cow catchers on some of them too yeah. where they could get next to one of the hedgehogs and like knock them over to the side if they made it to the beach. Uh, yeah, they just all that kind of shit. They had it, what was it? They called it the Churchill, the AVRE. Like the armored vehicle something. Yeah. And they took the gun barrel off and they put like a bigger cannon barrel it on it. It was like a snub nose. Yeah. And so it turned it into like <laughs> that, a yeah, fucking exactly. snub nose <laughs> that launched like a 40 pound like mortar shell. But all, all it was was to hit those embankments that they had built up mm-hmm. and just blow them apart. Try, like to, get, was, try to launch and get an arc of fire to yeah. where they could land it behind some, some defenses. Well, and they're just using them to blow defenses that they know are going to be like mm-hmm. impassable. Like if there's a, not a crow's nest, but if they have like a little pillbox out there mm-hmm. that they're firing from, they're just made to like hit those and just obliterate it. Yeah. Not like blow it up, just like fuck it up completely. Yes. Or if anything, create a big ass crater that then your troops can use for cover. Yeah. On it, the beach. If you're firing something 40 pounds that high in the air, it's going to hit the ground and do some damage. Yeah. So, we're kind of the Germans are at this point. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. We forgot about, like, the most important thing that was created during this time, the Mulberry Harbors. There you go. I talked so much about the damn ports, yeah. and I had it in my notes, and I skipped over it. Okay, one of the other reasons they were able to use Normandy, and one of the reasons that they thought, the Germans thought that they couldn't use Normandy was essentially the lack of a port. So if there's no port there, what do you do, Adam? You got to bring the port there. Yeah, you bring the port with you. The British developed this thing. They were called Mulberry Harbors. And I, until I looked into this, really, really looked into this, I didn't realize the scope and the size. Think of a, first of all, what they, you have to design to make a harbor. If you notice, most uh, harbors like have a breakwater. Mm-hmm. It basically slows down the waves and makes it to where it's calm and you're not having to deal with choppy seas. So when they first got, um, to Normandy and they were able to storm the beaches, they started sinking some of like the junk ships to create a breakwater to make that water calmer, to be able to send, you know, you can get troops in easier and everything. Build yourself a little coral reef yep. almost, an old boat. Part of the mulberry system was they also brought in these things that were also to meant to break the water. They were these gigantic, it looked like concrete structures. They just looked like concrete blocks, but they were enormous. The Looking at them, probably 80... 60 to 80 feet high, maybe 100, 120 feet long, huge, just concrete boxes. And they would bring them over and tow them on barges. They started making a breakwater out of those that brought over temporary, or they brought over portable like pylons that they could sink into the, Uh and then essentially all of these floating platforms, like think of like a dock at a lake. It floats, it moves and everything. Now size that out by like, a uh, hundred thousand. Yeah, I just uh, it's it's oh. stretched out. Like looking at it from the beach, the way it stretches out, it looks like it's stre- it had to stretch out far enough to where the ships coming in to unload this wouldn't drag on the bottom. And, and these so we're are t- massive ships. Yes, we're talking about like thousands of yards out from the beach, and they basically constructed these two artificial harbors. One of them they did at Omaha. The other, I want to say, was at Gold or Juno. And during a storm pretty early on after the invasion, the one on Omaha gets damaged and can't be used anymore. And they have to just use the gold one. But again, man, this is creation. You're basically making it to where you're able to not have to have a port. 
you're just constructing one portable piecemeal and you bring it over and have it constructed in like a matter of like a couple days. And you're doing the one thing that they said wasn't going to be what you need or there were, you were doing the one thing that they said you were going to need in these specific cities. But so, which is why they didn't suspect you of landing in this spot. Yeah, there you've created their biggest need to defend so they have no idea where it's coming. And it's it's here's the thing is it's it's a very logical thought for them to have that they yeah. could land and be able to not so much land there, but you couldn't resupply your troops enough to hold off the enemy or land enough troops there to, to establish a presence. I just, uh, you can, the, the whole thought of the way that that was all built and able to be made, like it's, you can still go and see pieces yeah, on, on uh, one of the beaches of it. Well, and I think that's what they said was it was made to hold up for like 17 months or something mm-hmm. like that before it needed repair. And it's still there today. Well, like I mean, not, Sticking Not, out, there's like yeah, it's just like chunks, chunks floating, sticking out of the beach and everything. But yeah, the simple fact that it's still there is pretty crazy. Uh, it's just nuts. So, the where the Germans are at this point is they got their own weather people, and they're they're looking out for an invasion <laughs> at this point. I mean they're they're not ready and they don't know where it's going to be at and everything, but they know it's coming. So, is this their their cope when they say that the the people that they enslave control the weather? <laughs> <laughs> Afterward, maybe they said this after after the weather forecast didn't turn out to be accurate. It was the, wrong, so then they blame them for it. That's exactly what happened, man. So the guys that are in charge of predicting essentially if an invasion can happen on the German side are like, uh, it's supposed to be shit weather for two weeks, so Bad this deal. can't happen for the next two weeks. Everyone is like, we got so we got two weeks, cool. So uh, Rommel ends up taking off for Berlin to go buy his wife some shoes and see her for her birthday. He's also there to um, ask Hitler for more reinforcements. Didn't he go up to like mustaches, like vacation home or some shit like that? Well, his vacation home where Hitler was at this point when D-Day happens is he's in um, Birch's garden at the Bergdorf. That's what I think that that's where they were. Is that where he I had think to go Rommel, Rommel was there? Cause I think they were there the night before. Cause from what I heard, and I think I saw it in a, a documentary was that night Rommel had gone to bed early and the H man like had to drug himself. And so he was basically like passed out in a stupor when the actual D day took off at midnight and they didn't wake him up because they didn't want him to be furious. Like they thought that they could handle it until he woke up. Rommel wasn't there. He, oh, was, he, wasn't? he was somewhere. He was in Germany closer to Berlin. I think he's still too way, 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 way too far to do anything. Yeah, but just the fact that, like, they didn't even wake Hitler up when this started. Well, apparently they said Hitler couldn't sleep till, like, 3 o'clock, and then he had his doctor give him something <laughs> to knock him out. And so, I don't know if they were scared to... to here, here's playing into that as well, the whole, like, we're scared to wake up Hitler thing. So Yeah, because he was a meth addict. Well, no shit. But prior to this, when Rommel first kind of took over the Atlantic Wall, there were... Um, he was asking for more tanks because Rommel, there was two different kind of philosophies for how things should essentially be defended because Rommel came from essentially like an armored background and everything like that, working with tanks. He was like, I want these as close to the coast as possible because I need to be able to move these things into position to counterattack as quickly as possible. And 
a bunch of other people in German high command were like, no, you can't have those there. It'll be too close to the beach. It could get destroyed by like naval artillery and all that kind of stuff if they find out where our units are. So we want to go and hold those quite a ways back, but then we can keep them all concentrated so we can move a large portion of them to a specific spot for a counterattack. Yeah. He's like, it, that's not going to work. He's like, this, the whole point of this is if we don't stop them at the beaches, if they get a foothold, it's not going to matter if you move up the armor or anything. So they end up going to Hitler and Rommel kind of makes his case and Hitler's like, okay, I'll give you, he's like, I'll give you two armored divisions that you can go ahead and have authority over. I'm going to give three to the guy that was in charge of like the Western European theater. His name is like Rumstead or something like that. And Rumstead was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and keep those kind of like just north of Paris. Do you know how far Paris is from the Normandy? beaches pretty far it's like 150 miles it's not far at all no but 100 to to stop a surprise attack oh do you I know mean, how long it would take you to get tanks 150 miles yeah i guess i was thinking more air air support but oh they didn't have that big guy at the point when uh d-day was going to happen they only had about the luftwaffe only had about 700 planes in uh france and the Allies during the operation, I think, had somewhere in the neighborhood, it was either 5,000, it was between five and 7,000. So it's a substantial amount more. Yeah, I, that's why they had complete air superiority over it. And the Germans had pulled back a ton of aircraft to cover actual, like, German towns because we were doing bombing raids uh-huh. over, like, places in the Rhineland for, like, military targets. So that's where they were kind of keeping the the remaining portion of the Luftwaffe centered. Yeah, we had to keep them on their toes. And then a ton of, like, the senior leadership for, like, uh, Normandy and the French coast for all that defense because they thought they had two weeks off. They took off to go watch, like, uh, war games in Reims. I don't know why you're still doing war games during a fucking active war. I don't know why you're taking time off during an active war. They had two, they had two weeks. How, but how do you know? The weather guy said it. <laughs> they control the weather, man. They haven't invaded up to this point. Why would they do it in this two-week period, right? I just, I feel like if you're at war, though, like, you can't just take a vacation. Like, the Americans weren't doing that. They didn't have a vacation they could take. Well, we also didn't have Europe at that point. Yeah. And we were trying to be sneaky-sneaky about it. So, out of those ten divisions of tanks, two went to Rommel, three went to that Rumstead guy. Hitler's like, I'm going to keep four of them. No one can do anything with these four tank divisions without my express permission. So he he wouldn't even be able to react to the situation because they would have to tell Hitler, get a message to him. He would then have to approve it, get a message back. Before, I mean, the timing of that, it's it's stupid. Yeah, well... So I'm I mean, saying there was a lot of things working for us. So when I was talking about is, are there things that could have happened that prevented this from being success. I'm not saying it just would have been like him giving Rommel 10 divisions of tanks and being like, yeah, put them wherever you want. I think that could have really put a damper on the invasion and made it take a lot longer. But I mean, aside from that and them knowing where the invasion was going to happen more specifically, other than those two things, I, I don't think that it had a chance to, to actually prevent it from happening eventually. Because it took it, a week to get off those beaches or anything like that, or yeah, dude, it's so weird to think about this in like a 
a Confederate war type idea Mm -hmm. because it really was. I mean, this whole thing involved what it was the first day there was 156,000 soldiers dropped by the allied forces and there were like 50,000 Nazis that were were there. I mean, the sheer numbers alone is just like the civil war, like the union mostly won the civil war because they could just keep losing men. And resources. Yeah. That's the exact same thing here. It just, it seems so similar in that Mm -hmm. respect. That that good old union strategy. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing too. The soldiers in France. So basically soldiers in France on the Eastern front, if they took over areas, because some of the areas that Russia had taken over were anti-communist. So a lot of some of those areas actually jumped over and some of those few people started fighting for the Germans. The choice was either also a POW camp or or fighting against what you thought, you know, fighting against communism for some of these okay. people. They also constricted some people in lieu of prisoner of war camps. So like, you can go die in this camp or you can fight for us. They didn't leave them there to fight, though. What they would do is they sent those people over to the Western Front because then they would be fighting essentially not their own countrymen. It would, yeah. And they couldn't just escape and run back to their, their people. They would then take more abled body and more like efficient troops that were already in France, mm-hmm. move them over to the Eastern Front to try to be more effective. So out of those, you know, if they had 50,000 people along, and that's not just at Normandy, that's along essentially the entire defense along that French coast the area. 50 miles that you were talking about? It, it was... Yeah, I think it might have been kind of around that whole... It wasn't just one beach specifically. But a lot of them were either conscripts that were working, that were soldiers from, like, other countries. Yeah. Either um, wounded people. Uh, Some of the, like, units and companies that they would... That were, like, really degraded and needed to get off the line on the east. Basically, they were using France as kind of a recuperation and a recovery to regain like company strength. So they were using that as like a resting area. So that was also who was comprising a lot of those soldiers too. They had a couple like experienced units, like some of the commanders were experienced, but it wasn't like top flight, but overall the quality of troops was, was definitely not their best, which again, this is all just falling into like, this is the place that at some point, you know, is going to be invaded. So the, the guys that, you know, were more of the top, like, Nazi troops and everything, those were the ones that were centered around, like, those fortresses, like Cherbourg and Calais and things like that. The big ticket items. Yes, that's where they would have the, the top troops. So, I mean, at this point, we are, we are up to the time of the invasion. I mean, the, the board is, like Gandalf says, the board is set. The pieces are moving. <laughs> Events are about to be set in motion that cannot be undone. But, I mean, once we get into actually talking about, you know, D-Day next week, it's going to be stuff that all takes place within about a day, maybe a few days after. But, I mean, this is all of the lead-up, everything that had to fall into place, all of the secrecy that had to be maintained, all of the misdirection and lies that they had to sell, essentially, to the Nazis about this. It's, It's incredible, man. Like, the, the amount of equipment and men, manpower and all that kind of stuff and, and the preparation, just just insane. It's staggering. Well, and it is a day, but you know that day, every hour was an entire day for every person that was out there. They call it the longest day. Yeah, I yeah. just, I don't see how you could keep focus for as long as you were 
to make all that shit happen. Like, your body has already been tossed around. You either got tossed out of an airplane and by the grace of Allah you lived, or you were driven in over this terrible choppy water that more than likely made you sick to your stomach. Yeah. Your feet your feet have you, your whole body has probably been soaked for a 24 hour period at this point mm-hmm. be it water blood sweat like you're trying to ration whatever you have to be like you're not sitting there eating a snickers on the beach your yeah. ass is going all the time yeah you have a mission the beach is just like it's not like you storm the beach and it's like good job guys <sighs> not over no like your job then is to push as far inland as you can so all the next guys coming up on the beach have a place to go it's just and that's the thing when you're dropping off the sheer numbers that they did on these Relatively what sounds like huge areas, but they just, for the amount of people, they weren't big swaths of land. Like, no. they, you, there wasn't, it wasn't a big spread out fight. There mm-hmm. was, once you got inland further, there was, but right on well, the beach. Well, that was your hope. You would yeah. get inland and then be able to spread out to establish a bigger area. Yeah, just crazy. So, I'll, I'll say this before we end the episode. So, the day before this happened, Churchill wasn't feeling very good about this. He said he didn't feel good about the plan, kind of. From the get go, and Churchill was anti overlord. Yeah, he he really thought that he had something else going or something. I and I don't blame him because his fear was essentially that they would lose so many guys doing this, and that's why he pushed essentially because he thought the easier way to go about it, although it would have taken longer, was to go essentially through Italy and the south of France. But at this point, you know, they they think they thought they had a good idea. They thought they had a solid plan, and so next week we'll find out how that how that goes for them. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, guys. Well, tune in next week to find out about the exciting conclusion of D-Day. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.